Hey, my name is Matt. I want to welcome you at any of our six locations spread through Northwest Georgia and up into the Tennessee Valley. We're glad that you're here. And, you know, I could talk about Compassion International and our partnership that we have with them for, for a long time. But here, here's the opportunity that we have, Rockbridge, with our upcoming uh, Compassion Weekend experience. And this is going to be hosted at our Calhoun campus October 18th to the 21st. Is you can we spend we send about fourteen and a half percent of our budget uh, outside our four walls to bless our community locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. And Compassion is one of our great partners. And you will have an opportunity if you can never get on a plane and go with me to Ethiopia or to Haiti or to somewhere in Central America. Uh, you can just go to Calhoun, Georgia. All of us can grab a meal down there, but also just go and just tour what it is like for a child to live in extreme poverty and then understand how we are trying to partner together to alleviate that where we can. And, and so I just want to challenge all Rockbridge. This is a great thing. Grab your kids. Go take your kids through this. Take your spouses and your family and make this a family affair. Go with your small group, however you want to go, but just get in your car, drive to Calhoun. You can reserve a spot at robbers.cc forward slash compassion. You can also just show up, and it's going to be a five-minute wait if you reserve and a 10 to 15-minute wait, perhaps, if you just show up. But I just want to encourage you. That's the 18th and 21st. You'll get to see our new ministry platform in Calhoun, Georgia, and see what we do internationally, globally uh, in our efforts to be like Jesus by being his church to the ends of the earth. All right, so today we're in part five of this series called Be Like Jesus. We've been in Luke's gospel from chapter four. We're going to get all the way through chapter nine. Chapter four through nine is when Jesus is ministering in Galilee. And, and we're just kind of saying this, hey, we all grew up wanting to be somebody. And we said, hey, that's actually a real desire that God gave us because ultimately God created us to be like him, to be like his son, Jesus. And so when we encounter Jesus in the Bible, we learn two things. We learn who God is like, and we learn what we're supposed to be like. And so we're asking this question, hey, if Jesus had my marriage, how would he do it? If Jesus had my neighbors, how would he do that? If Jesus had my bank account, how would he spend it? If he had my time, how would he leverage it? And so that's the question we've been navigating through to just discover who is this guy, God, God, guy, Jesus, and then who are we supposed to be in light of him? So today, we're going to intersect about three or four stories that are kind of bunched together in rapid-fire succession. And, and what we're going to discover in these stories is something we do all the time, whether you're spiritual or not, religious or not. Every single person you ever look at does this. We're all what I'll call meaning makers. We assign meaning to events. We assign meaning to crises, to celebrations. We assign meaning to SEC football. We assign meaning to everything. And so what happens is we just look at something, we experience something, we ask this question, what does it mean? Or maybe we say it, why did this happen? Or, or what's going to result because this happened? You know, my dogs aren't asking this question. My dogs aren't trying to create meaning. The, the ape down at the Atlanta Zoo, he, he's not trying to create meaning and understand things. He's just trying to exist and survive. So we, of all God's creatures, are saying, hey, what does this really mean? And, and so let me say this this way. We don't live based on the facts but rather based on our interpretation of the facts. It's how we interpret it. And, and we go, we're all over the map on this, right? It's why, guys, you know, you may take your, your girl to a movie, and like, let's say it's a romantic comedy or a romantic movie, a chick flick or something, and, and, and she walks out, and she's weeping and crying, and she's like, hey, what did you think? And you're like, man, the popcorn was amazing, right? And now, where does that come from? Well, it's just we just interpret the facts 
differently. Flip it around, you go see some war movie guys, you know, we're like Braveheart, we're like amazing, and we're like, oh, that was awesome. And you get your inner warrior going, and you look over at your girl, and like, what did you think? And she's like, ew, it was just so violent, right? Why is that? Because it's just the facts and how we interpret the facts. Now, here's where this gets crucial and it gets really important. This interpretation is our faith. So everybody's got faith. The atheist has faith. Everybody's got faith because you're interpreting facts to make meaning of the facts. And that interpretation is our faith. So everybody's got faith. And so what we're trying to do today in our Be Like Jesus series is, okay, how would Jesus have us interpret facts and reality? How would Jesus have us live our lives and interpret our lives? So before we get into these four stories, which are going to give us three kind of interpretations that we all struggle with, before we get into that, let me give you the key that I think unlocks Luke chapter 8. It's found in verse 21 and in verse 15, which is right before you get these three stories. So in verse 21, Jesus says this. He's he's told after he's doing some stuff, and his mom and his brothers come outside, and they send word for him. They said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. But he replied to them, he said, well, my family or my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. My, 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 My family are people who look at life, interpret life, and do life through the lens, through the paradigm, through the instructions, through the principles of the Word of God. That's my family. Now, what makes a family a family oftentimes is how we do things and how we see things. Have you ever said, this is how we do it in our house? It's how we assign meanings, how we look at it. So that's what makes a Democrat a Democrat and a Republican a Republican. It's how they assign meaning to facts and what should be done about those things, right? It's, how, it's why some people are Georgia fans and some people are fans of any other thing, right? It, 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 it's just how we assign meaning. And so Jesus says, look, I, I, I'm creating a family, a family of people who are going to look, see, and interpret things and live out that interpretation based on my words. So it, it, let's look at verse 15. These are the two key verses to interpret in Luke chapter 8. And this is after he tells this parable of the soils and four types of soils or four types of human hearts. The seed and the good ground are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it and by enduring produce fruit. And by enduring produce fruit. So here's an analogy for what Jesus is saying. Okay? We have his word. And he said, my family are going to be the people who interpret, live, do life, apply life based on what comes from my word. And, and they're going to produce fruit. They're going to produce something beautiful, and it's going to be Christ-like. It's going to be like me, my brothers, my sisters, my family, like God. And, and so that's the original thing. In Genesis 1, 27, we're made in the image of God, right? We're supposed to go out into the world and reflect God's beauty and creativity and his diversity and his goodness into creation. And, and now, listen, if, if we don't do that, let me give you the, the opposite. I think if when we don't do that, I have a Halloween toy grenade, um, we, we, we end up being like this. In that we're volatile, we're unsettled, one wrong move, we're shrapnel to people around us. Uh, we, we're fearful, we're 
anxious, we're stressed out, we're mad, we're manipulative. None of those things are good fruit. None of those things, amen, none of those things Jesus did. So Jesus, let's say it this way, Jesus is creating a new family based upon how, based upon those who interpret and live in light of his word. This is not a new concept. It said in Deuteronomy, it says this way, <clears throat> man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So you could say it this way. We interpret life and thus do life based on what we receive, what we hear from God. Now, here's why that's so powerful. Here's why that's so powerful. God actually exercises his power and his authority through his word. God's power is predominantly demonstrated and exercised through his word. So, so let's see this in scripture so you believe it. The, Hebrew, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord. Let's apply it to your soul, to your heart. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So listen to the power. We're kingdom seekers, one of our core values here at Rockbridge Community Church. So, so what is God doing? He's taking a family, creating a family who will interpret life based on his word, and they go out in that power and authority of that interpretation and that authority that God exercises through his word, and then we become beautiful things, bright spots, light, salt, in strategic places all over the map. Compassion International, where we're partnered with them. Hope Initiatives, where we're partnered in local communities. Your family, your job, your neighborhood. That's the vision that Jesus has and why be like Jesus is so crucial, not only to who you and I are or who we're supposed to be, but also to who the church is and who the church is supposed to be. So with that understanding, let's jump in and we'll get four stories. The last two are wrapped together, but four stories, rapid fire succession. And what we're going to see in this four these four stories are three interpretations that we often make that are misaligned with the Word of God. And, and so you're probably living one of these interpretations. And what we're going to try to do is realign back to the Word of God so that instead of this danger, volatile, fearful, crazy, whatever, we get this. Okay? So Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, we start reading verse 23. One day he and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake and they were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up. Jesus is still sleeping in the danger. He's still asleep, saying, Master, Master, we are going to die. Now, let me share with you Mark's gospel. Mark adds another little phrase in here, and let's just see what Mark says. He was in the stern, the back of the boat, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care that we are going to die? Now, he, he, here's the big picture of, of why this story is so powerful and, and so amazing, because this gives us really a snapshot, a paradigm, a picture of, of how we are sent out into the storms of the world and how we are sent out on, on our journey, okay? It, it really looks like this. We have who we are, ourself, and we've been working on that to be more like Jesus. 
We have situations that we get put in or we, we put ourselves in. And then we, we, we have the God factor, and, and some of us have a God factor, some of us more, some of us less. And then our reaction to the situation based on who we are, who we're not, based on what we believe about God, what we don't believe about God. And that reaction is connected to our interpretation. So here's, the, here's, here's where God's using you, whether you know it or not, or wants to use you whether you know it or not. He takes who you are right now. And situations come into your life. Some you control and some you choose, some you do not. And, and again, we don't like that, that we're not in control, but God is sovereign all all this. And so what God wants to see happen in your life, what we're working toward in this series, what we're working toward in hope, what we're working toward with compassion, all of those things is this, that God would take the collective self that's called Rockbridge, or you, and you and your situation, your job, your marriage, your kids, your neighborhood, your whatever, we would have right beliefs about God based on who Jesus is, and we would react in ways that are beautiful and display the glory of God. That's, the, that's why God puts you on earth. Right there it is. You don't always get to choose your situation, but you can choose your reaction. You can understand who God is, who he wants you to be, and you can react in ways that are beautiful and glorify Jesus. Now, what, what happens, though, is we don't always align with the word of God. And so what comes out of us is what comes out of the disciples. Fear, doubt, and confusion. Fear, doubt, and confusion don't make any situation better. Okay? But listen, look what they do. And this is, so, this is what's so powerful about our, our reaction, which is tied to our interpretation. What do the disciples question? Do they question themselves? No. Do they question their situation? Well, it's a bad one. What do they question? They immediately question God. We tend to question everything but our interpretation. That's why, we, that's why politics is at a standstill, because nobody's willing to say, well, maybe I could look at it a different way, right? That's why, that's why marriages go south, because everybody, no, it's your fault. No, it's my fault. Maybe you ought to question your interpretation. And, and so the disciples are in this boat, and who goes on the witness stand? Who goes on trial? Jesus. God does. Who's at fault? God is. Whoa, 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 maybe, 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 maybe there's a better interpretation and a better way to look at your situation. And so Jesus, he's not going to, Jesus does God. He doesn't do, oh, I'll morph and change because you're upset. He does God. So he forces them to question what they need to question. So he gets up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves. What did he rebuke it with? His word. Where's his power and authority? His word. What are we trying to align our lives to? His word. So they ceased, and there was calm, and he said to them, where is your faith? He doesn't say, hey, do you have faith? They got faith. They're facing their interpretation. And then they, were, who, were, they who were fearful of the waves, now they're fearful and amazed of him. They ask one another, who then is this? And he commands even the waves, or the wind and the waves, and they obey him. So, so what interpretation is going on here, or misinterpretation? This is an area in your life, in my life, where we can miss God, misinterpret God. It's the authority interpretation. When, when I'm in a situation, when I'm in a storm, when I'm in life, what's the ultimate authority? And, and, and for the disciples here, the ultimate authority, the question is, is it the situation I'm in or the God that I'm with? Is it the, is it the God that's with me in the boat? And, and oh, by the way, 
if he's asleep during the storm, and if I'm supposed to be like him and take my cues from him, and he's the captain, and he's got the steering wheel of the boat, and he ain't worried, maybe I shouldn't be as worried and afraid too. Because isn't this true? Healthy fear drives out misplaced fear. That's what we see happening. A healthy fear of God. Not, not I'm afraid to, afraid to come to God. I'm afraid to get away from God. I see him in his authority. I see him in his personality. I see him wanting to be near me and come close to me. Doesn't that drive out misplaced fear in life? And, and that leads us to this life change equation that we've been showing virtually every week in our Be Like Jesus story, okay? I've got things in my head and things in my heart that are not aligned to God's word. So God sends his word, and I have to, pro whether God speaks to you in a burning bush or God speaks to you through the written word, you still have to process it and arrive at an interpretation, okay? So, so you can never say, God doesn't speak to me if your Bible is closed, okay? You can never say that, because when he says that's his word, all right? So, so the, it comes into our head, we, we process it, we reflect on it, we think about it, we reach some emotional conclusions, some value-based conclusions about the truth and about the perspective and about the situation or about ourselves or whatever, and then our reaction is what we get. And what God is trying to get us to is this reaction. So in, in the storm, we're calm. In the storm, we're trusting. In the storm, we're looking at Jesus more than we're looking at the waves. In the storm, we're prayerful, we're dependent versus, Jesus, don't you care about me? God, I'm afraid. God, we're going to die. And we are grenades. So that's, that's, that's the situation. Authority interpretation. Second interpretation. So this is rapid fire. He gets out on land and immediately... A demoniac, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and did not stay in the house, but he stayed in the tombs. This is actually a picture of what evil does to a person. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demon knows exactly who he is. No doubts with the demon. He goes, I beg you, don't torment me. I command you, don't torment me. Now, the key to this whole story or this, this misinterpretation or interpretation is in, this, is in this Greek phrase, what do you have to do with me, which would, which would sound like this, what do you want with me? What you with me is how it literally reads in Greek. What you, Jesus, with me. In other words, Jesus, you've landed on my coast, and this is what I'll call the interruption interpretation. This is when there's an interruption to the normal. There's an interruption to, to my, my deal, my status quo. Whatever your status quo is, there's an interruption to it. And it's how we interpret that interruption is the basis of whether what comes out of us. What comes out of us is get away from me, God, grenade, or God, I, you, you've got to have your hand in this. I want to draw to your grace, flower. Okay? So Jesus commanded <clears throat> the unclean spirit to come out of the, out of the man. Where, where's Jesus' power and authority? In his word. How does Jesus exercise the demon or get the demon out of him? Just speaks to it. That's all he does. Because why? Because the power is in the word. Okay? To come out of him. And they begged him, because there were many demons in the man, they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. This is weird. I don't know the interpretation. If you do, send it to me. But um, a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. 
and the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The pigs run off a cliff, and like two, 3,000 pigs are killed that day. Okay, I, I don't, I, sorry, I don't, I don't know all the answers. I don't know what to do with that. Uh, God's got power and authority that I don't have. I don't know. Um, so when the man, but then the men who tended the, the pigs saw what had happened. They ran off and reported in the town and the countryside. So this is not real good for the economy, right? Grace shows up, God shows up in power and authority. He's an interruption to the demons. He's also an interruption to the local economy. So then people come in to see what happened. They came to see Jesus. They found the demoniac man that the demons had departed from sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. And are we getting a common reaction here? And so they're afraid. Now here's the key question, though. Why are they afraid? They've assigned meaning to Jesus. They've assigned meaning to what happened. And they're afraid. They're fearful. Is it good fear? Is it bad fear? Is it holy fear, healthy fear? Is it misplaced fear, misinterpreted fear? There's all kinds of that, right? And, and you, I'm afraid. Was it healthy fear? Is it holy fear? What, what's going on? So meanwhile, <clears throat> the story continues. The eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was healed, was delivered. And what are they going to say to Jesus? Then all the people of the region asked him to leave them. Same thing the demon asked them. Remember, the demon said, what do you do to me? Go away. Don't bother me. The people do the same thing to Jesus. Why? Because he's an interruption to their status quo. They were comfortable living around evil, and they're definitely comfortable with their economy. Jesus disrupts evil. Jesus disrupts the economy. Jesus is a disruption. So getting in the boat, Jesus... Returns, grips, they're gripped by great fear. But one guy sees this interruption as grace. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him. But he sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. Becomes one of the first evangelists in the Bible. So, so when there's an interruption and we misinterpret the interruption... Here's the situation. God becomes a disruption. When we understand what God is doing and submit to his sovereignty and to his grace, we see it as an invitation. We see it's an invitation. So, so in our lives, we have to understand God's grace, listen, God's grace is always an interruption because the world does not run on grace. The world runs on quid pro quo and you owe, you earn, you deserve. Grace is always an interruption. Grace interrupts evil. Grace interrupts the economy. The economy of, hey, I'm a good person. Grace has nothing to do with that. Because there are no good people according to God's grace and to God's word. So, so look, here, here's, here's where it comes out, right? My life, my situation. In this case, it's a status quo. Now, one guy didn't like the status quo, so he's interrupted by Jesus, and he sees it as an invitation, and he reacts, and he's like, okay, Jesus, you tell me to go back to my hometown and tell everybody what you've done for me. So he's like, yeah, he's going to go bloom where God plants him. See, every one of us here, we're planted somewhere. God, I want to be transplanted because it's really an interruption to my style, or no, God, I'll bloom where you've planted me. Now, the other folks, they're like, well, Jesus interrupts them, and they're like, hey, God, uh, why don't you just go away? Because you're disruptive. We'd rather just be comfortable with the evil out in the tombs and with our economy the way it was. And there's no change. 
That's where we find ourselves, right? Rapid fire, third and fourth story. So Jesus returns, gets back to some other, another location in Galilee. The crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, this is rapid fire, everybody's coming to Jesus. Just then a man named Jairus came, and he was a leader of the synagogue. Now I'm going to zero in on that phrase, leader of the synagogue, that Luke tells us about. If you've been here for the last several weeks, you've noticed in, in Galilee, Jesus constantly bumps into religious people. Religious people are the people who think they're good enough because they do certain things and don't do certain things. They don't really need God. They don't really need God's grace because they're good enough, right? And, and so all the interactions with these religious people in Luke 4 up to this point have been negative. They've, been, they've missed God. They've misunderstood God. They didn't want Jesus. So we're going to zero in on this because Jairus, by definition, or rather by purpose or position or identity, Jairus should look at Jesus as a blasphemer. Jairus should look at Jesus as an outsider, a threat. Jairus should want to get rid of Jesus, okay? And, and, and we're going to see his reaction in just a minute. But this is another interpretation that we face is our identity, our identity interpretation. And which one wins? Because, you know, the world wants to give us identities. Our past wants to give us an identity. And God wants to give us an identity. So Jairus is going to be the guy who comes and we're introduced to him with his society, religious, Jewish identity. So Jarrett comes to him and says, this is your pedigree. This is your title. This is who you are. A lot of us live that way. Who does society say that I am, right? I mean, the first thing after you, if you meet a grown adult, you ask, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? It's that third question. That's like, who are you in society? And, and, and how do you see yourself? Okay. So Luke introduces Jairus as a leader of the synagogue who typically, based on this identity, would interpret Jesus, assign meaning to Jesus as a threat and a blasphemer. What does Jairus do? He falls down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. That's the situation he's in. So in that situation, Jairus is not the Jewish religious leader. In this situation, Jairus is a grace-hungry, dependent humble person, the kind of people who get Jesus because of how they interpret Jesus based on the word of God. Fourth story, though, while they were going, the crowds were nearly crushing him, Jesus, and a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed, she comes up to Jesus. Now, let's zero in on this condition. This is something uh, with her menstrual cycle. So she is um, condemned or sort of shame-based. She's sent away. She's isolated. No intimacy, no marriage, uh, nothing, nothing like that. I mean, so it's very, in, in this culture, she would have an identity for 12 years that was shame-based. Shame is there's something wrong with you or what, someone, what they did to you or what's wrong with you kind of isolates you. And, and, and probably it's not a single person here who hasn't felt shame or felt ashamed. And sometimes society wants to label us based on shame and exclude us and laugh at us and keep us away and keep us out. But she comes through this crowd because she says, I can't see myself as shame-based anymore. I can't see myself as excluded because maybe this Jesus will include me because that's, that's what I'm hearing go around the neighborhood. 
So she approached him from behind. Now she comes, Jesus, like she comes in like a special forces, like a ninja, right? Because she's shameful. She doesn't really want anybody to see her or know. So she sneaks up from behind, touched the end of his robe. Instantly her bleeding stops and Jesus asks the question, who touched me? Well, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Why are you asking? I mean, it's just, everybody's touching you. Well, someone did touch me and because and someone touched him in a, in a, with a faith-based touch. He goes, I know that power has gone out from me. So a shameful person, the last thing a person dealing with shame is, is wants to be seen as they are, right? They're trying to hide who they are. So she finds out she's been discovered, and so she comes trembling and fell down before him. And in the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Now, I want you to listen to how Jesus speaks to her. He uses this phrase, daughter, very intimate. She'd never heard anybody speak to her kindly for 12 years. She'd never heard anybody take interest in her and give her an identity other than a shame-based identity for 12 years. And, and I say this to my boys, and I have to preach this to myself. The, the greatest thing God ever says to me is when he looks me in the eye through his word and says, Matt, you're my son. That matters more than Matt, you're, you're a preacher. Matt, you know, you were in the Navy. Or Matt, I can't believe what you did. No, 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 son. And... and the interpretation of my life and your life takes meaning when you put your faith in the fact that God wants to call you daughter or son. No matter what society says about you, no matter what shame says about you, that's what God wants to say to you. And then he says, your faith to her, he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And so we see her receive herself, interpret herself, because she now has a Savior-given identity. A Savior-given identity. And she's going to go, because he says, go in peace. Go in peace. She's going to go the rest of her days. She's going to live this. Shame doesn't let you live this. Society doesn't always let you live this. But daughter of God, son of God, reborn, adopted, chosen, justified. When you live from that spot, you can't help. But be a bright spot wherever, whatever situation God places you in. Now, this whole sequence has one little final piece to it that's, that's kind of misplaced to me, but then I had to wrestle with it and kind of see something in the text. So it's while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue, Jairus' house, and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Those are words, right? Words have weight in us. So, hey, it's, it's all over. Just send him away. But Jesus heard it, and he gives another word. He answered, said, don't be afraid. Don't, don't misinterpret. Don't assign the wrong meaning and get unhealthy fear. Don't be afraid. Only believe. There it is. Only believe. Believe what? She will be saved. Believe what? Believe Jesus' interpretation, which comes through his word, which is his power and his authority. And after he came to the house, everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said... Stop crying because she's not dead at asleep, but asleep. And, and look at the shift in the crowd. Because they cannot, they won't assign the meaning based on God's word. They assign the meaning based on their own understanding. How many of us here today are missing God because you refuse to accept God's interpretation based on God's word of your situation and you lean more on your understanding than on God's holy word? So they laughed at him. And look, they go from mourning to mocking God. Just like that. 
mourning death to mocking and laughing at the one who conquers death. But because they knew that's their understanding, that's their interpretation, she was dead. They're a grenade. They're a grenade. So what does Jesus do? He took her by the hand and called her and said, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once and he gave orders that she should be given something to eat. I think this is in the text because God is ultimately teaching us something. At the end of the day, there's really no neutrality here. At the end of the day, our, our true beliefs, our true authority, our true identities, our, 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 all of that comes out. And, and so at the end of the day, you, you, we got to just make decisions and choices. Do we go up with what God says in his word? Do we, does we let that unlock and be the basis of our interpretation? Do we straddle the fence because we're in these situations and what are we doing with God? I mean, are we just sometimes we go with God, sometimes we get rid of God? Or no, no, I'm just going to go with God because ultimately, again, here's our purpose, right? Is that God, God's goal is to put us in a position, put us in a situation, and to use our reaction. And, and the crowd shows us we can't straddle this, right? The crowd shows us that. We can't go from mourning to mocking. The crowd says, no, 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 you got you to gotta, you gotta believe the words of God and, and, and be a flower and bring beauty and bring glory to God, no matter your situation. So I, I don't know, you know, kind of what situation you're in, but I, but I wanted us to maybe uh, have an illustration of this in a real world, real life context. So you may have heard about this a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was last year, year or two ago, uh, an off-duty police officer in Texas inadvertently walks into what she thought was her apartment. It was the wrong apartment. She sees the silhouette of a man, 26-year-old accountant sitting on what she thought was her sofa. So she pulls her weapon, shoots him in the chest, and he's, he's killed. And uh, this past week, Amber Geiger, this police officer in Texas, was uh, convicted of murder. During sentencing, the victim's brother, Brant, takes the witness stand and offers this testimony. Would you watch the video? I, I forgive you, and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do and the best would be give your life to Christ that's, 
I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Maybe the uh, one of the greatest things I've seen. So an 18-year-old, that young man's 18, didn't know he'd be in that situation. There it is, right? It's what Jesus did for us. It's right there. Now, now look. Who's the most powerful person in that courtroom? Because an 18-year-old kid says, I'm going to interpret this. I'm going to assign meaning to this based on the Word of God. If he'd have yelled at her, if he'd have been angry, we would have all been, makes sense that we understand. You can go Google this. The world is having a hard time with this. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Let's pray. God, um, there may be some people here who have never really understood, much less received forgiveness and life from you. But today, there's a light maybe coming on in their mind and in their heart. And it's your light, God. It's not me, not anything we've said, not anything I've said. It's your spirit that's just asking them, knocking on their heart. To make Jesus their Savior, Jesus their authority, Jesus the source of their identity. And inviting those folks to receive forgiveness, give you the steering wheel of their lives, and live the rest of their days the best they know how in the power and the presence of yourself. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, if anybody's saying yes to that, I just want you to take the next step card during the last song and just let us know. You're giving your life to Christ. Your next step is baptism. If you were baptized before, it's baptism after you give your life to Christ. Go public with new life in Christ.
God, everyone in here today is in a situation, by choice or not by choice. Help us to see through the words in Luke's gospel and the testimony of 18-year-old Brant that we can't be neutral in our situation. We must, by your spirit, by the truth of your word, we must be like Jesus. God, I pray for all of us this week. We bloom where you have planted us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.